as we usually do, we would be jumping into the introduction of the cross-border interview podcast today, but with recent news out of Britain on April 9th, 2021, Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh, passed at the age of 99. As a monarchist, as a member of the United Empire Loyalist of Canada, as a believer in the crown, I want to take this moment on my podcast to just honor the service and dedication that Prince Philip gave to the crown, to the British people, and to the queen. Um, at 99 years of age, he was the longest serving consort to the crown and also the longest living male member of the British monarchy. He was a advocate for the environment. He was an advocate for conservation. He was also a big believer in sports. His memory and service to the crown will be sorely missed. I do want to take one minute out of your time and just remember Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh, during this national morning. And right after that, we will be jumping into our regularly scheduled episode with Jen Sanford, the conservative like me podcast host. So please take a moment, remember the prince, and then we will jump into this amazing episode. Welcome to the Cross Border Interview Podcast, a podcast about getting out from behind the keyboard and just talking. Each week, we invite a guest or two to sit down and talk about their life and their work. I'm Christopher Brown, your host, and this is the Cross Border Interview Podcast featuring Jennifer Sanford, conservative like me. Jen, I want to thank you so much for doing this. Greatly appreciate it for being on the show today. This will be airing on Wednesday the 14th. So uh, welcome to the listeners from here in Canada and around the world. Jen, thank you so much for doing this. I can't believe I'm here. This is like the Super Bowl of podcast guest guesting. Which is so weird because when I've talked to people, and I know we should be good talking about you right now, but you've just said something that I, I am fa fascinated about. People just seem to want to come on the show now. And when people come on the show, they're like, we, we've wanted the invite for like a week now. It's like, why? Like, I'm just some random person from Calgary, Alberta, originally from Newcastle, and you want to be on the show. But thank you. Thank you for talking about the Super Bowl and my show. <laughs> yes, it's it's an honor to be nominated for this podcast appearance. Um, Jen, uh, I would usually start my interview questions with uh, one question about duty, but for you, it's going to be a little bit different. Right. What does conservatism mean to you as the host of conservative like me podcast, which can be found on Apple podcast, Spotify. What does conservatism mean to you? Well, I think at, at its very basic, uh, at its very basic nature, it just means 
who can support Canada to its full potential. And I think what we've really seen is that uh, a liberal paradigm and an NDP uh, paradigm of thinking is really about the government can do everything. Like the government is going to be on a mortgage with you. It's going to make sure that you have a, a, an income. It's going to make sure that you, you know, it's going to promote industry as we address our, our central challenges uh, like climate change. It's all going to be driven from the government. And really, I think what conservative has always meant to me is that, no, there's actually there's actually three legs on this stool. Yes, there's a role for government, specifically um, in oversight and the ability to have a high levels of accountability um, and um, and to ensure that our most vulnerable citizens have a place to participate. But then there's also this huge role for, for the market. Uh, there's, there's, it's about attracting business. It's about attracting enterprise. It's about um, allowing people to, 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 to reach their full potential by saying, how can I contribute to, to the economy? And then I, I think conservatism now also means like, what is the, really the role of civic society? Um, I think under a liberal paradigm, it's really about, um, you know, a little bit of cheerleading. Um, but I think in a conservative, in an ideal conservative environment, the role of the civic society becomes how do we hold the government and the market accountable? Um, and how do we really articulate what we need and where we want to innovate and, and allow the government and the market to work together to open doors? So, you know, yeah, well, I'm sure we'll talk about stigma, but that's um, that's what I believe conservatism is to me, the way I was raised in my home to understand um, what it meant to be conservative. And that's what, it's a good jumping off point to who you are, because uh, we want to dive into a little bit about who you are for the show. And then, like you said, get into some policy questions, because that is what the podcast, your podcast, Conservative Like Me, is all about, is about pod, uh, policy. So we're going to talk about that deeply here as well. But for you, growing up in... Uh, I would say all of Alberta because you were <laughs> yes. truly an Alberta girl. Um, yes. Did conservatism, uh, was that a, uh, like, was that taught in your household at the dinner table or was that something you came to naturally? You know, I came from a political family because we were a current events family. We talked about current events around the, the dining room table. Um, you know, I am my father's daughter and my father um, to me was, you know, a very bright man who, you know, really, <laughs> really said like, listen, if you don't wake up in the morning and read the newspaper, you have no business talking about current affairs. And so we were, we were, a, you know, a political family, but I am also the product of my circumstances. Like, you know, I, I fell in love with Ronald Reagan. I remember being a very young child telling people Ronald Reagan was my dad, which is super offensive to my own dad. Um, you know, those little, those little lies you tell as a kid, you know, I, um, you know, as a, as a, as a child coming to find who I was in, in the late eighties, early nineties, you have to remember, like, I wanted to go to space. I was like, I want to be, I want to be an astronaut. I want to go to space, but space was for men. And so I never even thought like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to go. And we of course had no exposure to the likes of Sally ride and stuff because of, you know, we just didn't have the robustness of social media. So then Ronald Reagan's like, we're going to put a teacher in space. And I'm like, Oh my God, I'm going to be a teacher. Okay. I got it. I got the pathway. I'm going to be a teacher. And then I'm going to, if I'm good enough, I'll get picked. I'll go to space. It didn't never even dawned on me that I was a Canadian and this was an American program. It just felt like I can cross the border on this. This is, this is, I'm going to be so good. It's not going to matter. And then, you know, space, uh, the Challenger explosion happened and I'll never forget like the, just the searing memory that I have of, of, of Reagan saying like, you know, j just because this has been a tragic day, doesn't mean 
we don't still keep going. And this is about sacrifice, but it's about sacrifice in the face of progress. And at the very end, he said, you know, the goal for all of us is to find a challenge and meet it with joy. And I was, then I was hooked. Then I was hooked. I often wonder, had it been a democratic president that would have said it, if I would be hosting liberal like me today, I honestly, I honestly wonder. Um, but then for me, it was, you know, what is my passion and, and how am I going to meet that with joy? And, you know, after that, I had like a decade of, of haircuts inspired by Nancy Reagan, which I have photographic evidence on my website. You can visit it for yourself at jennifersanford.ca. Um, but for me, then it really just became about, you know, understanding, you know, how political courage shapes people's whole experience. And one of the things I say in my podcast this season is, you know, I am who I am today because of the political choices and the political leadership and the political courage that shaped my experience. And I'm still one of these Peter Pan people who still believes that, you know, there should be tremendous respect and, and yeoman service to people who choose to, especially today, stand in the face of the political space and try to have adaptive leadership and change from within. You've talked a little bit about American politics and uh, as Canadians, we are so heavily influenced on uh, American politics and you do talk about it in your show as well. Um, but let's talk about Canadian politics a bit because you said that you remember Reagan, but do you remember the first conservative Canadian politician that you went, you know what, this is who I could potentially idolize or um, look up to and sort of adapt my policy procedures or policies around what they're talking about? You know, not as much as as an American influence because it's the same as like the like I'm like I'm a rhetorician by by trade as a PR person. So the the American you know dialogue and experience is so aspirational all the time versus you know on our side we're so like how are we going to get to Thursday? And that's sort of just our Canadian experience. Uh, to me, I would probably say that it was Brian Mulroney. I remember him really talking about how we're not going to get a deal for one Canada. We're going to have Western Canada and we're going to have Quebec and we're going to have to manage the two. Um, and I remember thinking that that really, you know, kind of resonated with me more on a local level. I was all in with Ralph Klein from, from probably really day one. I, I thought of him as someone who, you know, reminded me of the people that I grew up around, people who, you know, were really going to say what was on their mind and then we'll deal with the political fallout later. And, um, you know, to me, I I, I I ultimately went on to be a, an intern for a short period of time in his public affairs bureau. It was my first taste of the political experience that I certainly ate it up. Um, although he gave me tremendously bad advice that I still hold him account. The ghost of Ralph Klein owes me an apology, but um, I think those were probably the two most seminal, seminal conservative voices that probably shaped, probably shaped my, my thinking. And um, the reason, and the reason I asked that is because this brings into your podcast conservative like me, because your upbringing, your uh, experiences, your policy views are come out full force in the show. And yes. I, before we get into the show, I want to ask the question, where did the idea for conservative like me come from? Well, I will say that I didn't, I didn't want to, well, I never imagined I'd have a podcast first of all. Um, but I, you know, it, it really, I did not want to be part of just having an opinion about, I feel so frustrated. Like opinions are like assholes. Everybody has one and I don't want to see it. And so I, I often am frustrated by just like the sheer amount of commentary. And I really, I really love this country. I really realize how, how 
the more I go, I've, you know, I have a tremendous amount of American education and I find myself unintentionally being this, you know, champion and advocate for, for Canada, the more I, the more I work around the world. And so I've always owned the guise of, I want to help. But what, what happened was, you know, I graduated, uh, I graduated from Johns Hopkins with a master's degree in political communication. And I thought, okay, this is it. This is now I got to do now I got to do something in, in the in the political space. And just to come back to why I'm I'm so upset with Ralph Klein. When I worked in Ralph Klein's Public Affairs Bureau, I had one really seminal conversation with him where he said where I said to him, this is it. I'm going to graduate uh, in the spring for my undergrad and I want to come and work in your in your PAB and your Public Affairs Bureau. I want to I want this is it. This is where I belong. I want to be I want to be pulling the levers of power. And he said, no, 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 no. No, 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 Miss Sanford. No, 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 no. You're going to go out and you're going to work in industry. You're going to learn innovation. You're going to work in the nonprofit space. You're going to learn how to solve problems with, you know, $2.50. You're going to go out and you're going to get a, a myriad of experience. And then you're going to come back to the government and you're going to, and you're going to bring all of that energy to help us grow. And that was bullshit advice because all I did then for 10 years was go out into industry. You know, I, I, I have had a tremendous career in PR and get educated, you know, um, you know, Johns Hopkins and Harvard have, have welcomed me with open arms. And then you try to go back into the government space and they're like, where have you been? No, 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 no. You should have been here since day one. You can't crack in now. We don't know you. And, and so you think, oh no, like where do I belong now? And so when I arrived back uh, in Canada from, from my time at Hopkins, I met with my member of parliament, Mark Warwa, uh, the late great Mark Warwa and said, what, what do I do? <laughs> do you have any thoughts on what I do now? And within four days, he had me in front of Andrew Shear. We met at a, at a hotel, that sounds seedy. We met at a hotel downstairs in a lobby in two, two chairs. And, um, and I heard him talk a little bit about what his vision was as he was going to, as we were headed into another election and all I'd ever wanted was to imagine myself in the house of commons. Like that was, that was the dream that I had held. I, if, if I wasn't going to be Ronald Reagan's daughter, I was going to be in the house of commons. And since one of those things is completely not, not practical, I thought, well, I'll, I'll lean into the Ottawa dream. And I found myself saying, no, I couldn't believe it. I found wow. myself saying, no, no, not for you. And so then, then you have a totally existential crisis. Then you go home. I remember I'm having one for you right now. <laughs> I know. So then you, you're, I, my grandfather had just passed away who, you know, was a larger than life sort of, and, and really a, a big part of my own political uh, thinking. And I remember laying in the spare bedroom of his home in Ottawa because of course I have to be in Ottawa. And I remember thinking, what is happening? If this was, if this is what you had been pushing for, you know, since you were, you know, really five years old and now you're turning your back on it, like what is happening? And what I came to discover is that I, I'm an extraordinarily ordinary Canadian. I'm a pollster's dream, but I did not see myself in the conservative movement. I did not see myself in the conservatives in Ottawa. And I couldn't figure out why. And when I started to think about how the Trudeau government was moving the Liberal Party so far to the left, it was leaving like 75% of the political spectrum open. And I didn't see myself in this 75%. And I thought, well, what is happening? And so then I just do, I do what all daughters do. I talked to my dad about it. And we talked and we talked and we talked and we talked, we talked issue by issue about what the problems were. And 
all of a sudden I thought, I wonder, I wonder if anybody else would want to be part of this conversation and thus became conservative like me, a podcast where I just openly have an existential crisis and my father tries to provide the best possible uh, economic advice and emotional support as I, as I undergo this. And I just thought, I wonder if anybody else out there doesn't see themselves in the conservative party and is, and is especially those who are voting liberal just simply because they see uh, you know, no other viable choice. And whether or not you are conservative or not, and I appreciate I'm talking a lot, sorry. Whether or if not you didn't, it'd be a crappy podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. But whether or not you are conservative or not, I think we can all agree that we deserve a strikingly strong two-party system. I mean, we are we are inches away from each other on the on the political spectrum. We are a very agreeable population. If there was ever a country that deserved a strong two-party system, it's this country. And when you have one strong party, it forces the other party to be better and then they build off one another. But what we have right now is the antithesis of this. We have, you know, a liberal government who's, you know, on a runaway and the conservative government is like well, when you're done with that, we're still going to be here. And that to me is not going to work. I think you're derelict in your duty when you think like that. Okay. So there's a lot to unpack with what you just said. Uh, first off, I, I, I've been open about this on the show and I think it uh, should be mentioned here. Uh, I, I ran for the liberals in 2015 and Peace River Westlock. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, after about Two minutes after the nomination, the person who was running the nomination from the party looked at me and said, you have no chance in hell of winning, so don't even expect any party help. Yay. Um, Not right. Not right. Not right. Then Trudeau came out with his uh, unbalanced budget plan, which then basically made me cringe because as a former Chrétien liberal, a balanced budget liberal, a Paul Martin liberal, Justin Trudeau has moved the liberal party so far left that I look at it and go, what the hell's gone wrong with this party? I am a former PCer. I will in Alberta. I'm progressive conservative. I'm a Richard Starkey conservative. I am a old school Klein Stelmack conservative so that's <laughs> okay. that's where i'm at so that he's let's my get soulmate that. you guys you guys exactly. listening he's my soulmate exactly. he's my political soulmate exactly um so when i married an ndp cabinet minister everything went wild for my family because as a former <laughs> conservatives former liberals they're like what are you doing interloping with the ndp but here we are <laughs> hey so, man love is love love is love exactly with that out of the way um i agree the the parties of today have dev- have grown more apart than they were back in the 80s and 90s i would assume and even into the 2000s i think stephen harper and paul martin were the last two party leaders that were sort of closer together than we see today andrew shear justin trudeau uh thomas mulcair they started the divide i would assume um but with that the two-party system that you talk about, this is the part where I'm, I'm concerned about. Do you, do you advocate for an American-style politics then in that sense? Because they are uh, truly a two-party system, Democrats and Republican. And we've seen in recent years, in the last four years, them divide so far because in the oh, 80s yes. and 90s they were close. So do you believe that the American-style two-party system is better for what we would need in Canada? No, I, I don't Misunderstanding believe- that. No, I don't believe it is uh, what I what we need, but I think it's going to be what we're going to end up with. I think when you've got the Liberal Party so far to the left, and I've I've been vocal about this, I think that the NDP party at its current stage under under Jagmeet Singh is a think tank. 
they're really a think tank for the Liberal Party. If it has salience, then the Liberal Party's like perfect. Thanks so much. And I think you're seeing the NDP struggle. To, I mean, have we? When was the last? Like, I, I think about Jack Layton's ghost just being like, what? Even Thomas Mulcair must just be like, what is happening? And um, and so you know, I I do think we should have we should have party like if Maxim Bernie wants to wants to echelon and find a home for the crazy go it you do you man um I I do think we can have as many parties as we need but I think at the end of the day it will come down to these two dominant parties of conservatives and and liberals and I think that's part of the narrative problem for conservatives today is that uh they're trying to hold the party together at a time when they should be focused on winning an election I I, I've I've always found it fascinating that Federal politics in Canada has been a multi-party system, uh, and NDP, uh, Liberals, Conservative, Bloc Québécois, and now with the three members of the Green. Let's let they have to be included because they are not technically party status, but they are members of Parliament. They're there. They're there. But provincially, we are seeing that move to a two-party system. Saskatchewan was, I would say, was the first uh, government that moved to a, a political spectrum, that moved to a two-party spect- uh, system with the Saskatchewan Party and NDP. You've seen that here in Alberta now with the Alberta Party and the Liberal Party sort of going off into a distance. And we do, I do want to talk about that because you do mention it in your show a bit. Um, yep. And then even in BC, you're seeing that you're seeing the uh, Green Party, a little bit of an insurgent, but the Liberals and the NDP there, Ontario mm-hmm. still that unknown f- cousin that I came from that I still don't really get. And Quebec, I, <laughs> there's so many parties in Quebec, I just don't even want to talk about them right now. Yeah. So why do you think that provincial politics is finding it easier to go to a two party system compared to a federal one? Is it the leaders or is it the actual policies that the provincial parties are putting up? Um, Some of it is policy, but I also think some of it is point in time. I talk about this on my podcast that I really do believe that you know, somebody get the reins of the Alberta party together. What is happening? Talk about a a golden missed opportunity. I make a football reference about how the kicker comes in the podcast, how the kicker comes out and has to kick a field goal. And to this, like the Alberta party is like, we don't know how to play. We don't have a football is the game today. Like uh, to me, I think that Alberta especially is ripe for a third party to come in and say, this is madness. We are young and entrepreneurial and we have, we're more aspirational than these two choices. No, ma'am, not today. No, thank you. I think if the Alberta party under the right leadership could catch a wave of, of momentum, I think that they could, they could be a, a really strong dark horse to, to shake up this entire thing and say to Kenny and Notley, yeah, not you, not you Canada or uh, Alberta deserves better. So I think and it's that, just a point in time. Yeah. And uh, just to talk about the Alberta party a little bit briefly here, they dropped, they dropped the ball the moment that uh, Stephen Mandel stepped down. They should have been in a yes. leadership race the moment that yeah. happened because the fact that they're waiting till October of this year to hold the leadership vote tells you well, that they are so not prepared and it's giving oxygen to the Alberta NDP and the Conservatives, the UCP, to just pick up those middle voters who aren't people who are so people who are so disenfranchised people who are so disenfranchised too like i i will really be watching with a careful eye ultimately what um 
what the GOTV, what the get out the vote is for both parties, because I think people are just going to stay home because they're just so furious. They can't believe they're going to have to switch so far to the left, so far to the right um, on the on the political spectrum in order to get leadership that represents them. I think it is a tremendous missed opportunity for the Alberta Party. If you're listening, Alberta Party, you blew it. Which they will be because I'll be inviting every single one of the leadership candidates, two of them that are already publicly told or privately told me that they are running. I will be having them on the show in season three. So be prepared for the other party leadership candidates on the show. Um, Conservative politics has changed dramatically. Like I said, Stephen Harper sort of created the new conservative movement in Canada, I would say, when they combined the two parties. We have seen since his uh, departure in 2015, an unknown conservative party. They don't know what their identity is from my perspective. And this is where I want you to talk about it a little bit. What is the identity of the conservative party of post Stephen Harper? Loudest voice wins. Yeah. And that's, that's what scares me. Yeah. We're all in the tent. Uh, It's now a circus. (laughs) <laughs> it's now a circus tent. We're all in that big blue tent. And all that's happened is that um, because we don't have a vision, uh, because we're, we don't have an adaptive leader, it's just the loudest voice in the group wins. And because they're trying to hold that party together, they've chosen unity over electability. Um, so long as the, 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 and they really still are the fringe, even though they're the dominant voice, they are the fringe, um, so deeply social conservatives. Um, the quote unquote Derek mo- Sloan's. Okay. Yeah. Derek Sloan, get out of Alberta. I know you're in Alberta today. You and Max and go home. Thank you. Go home. Um, yeah. So long as they remain mobilized. I mean, I, I, I talk about this anecdotally all the time, you know, they're so often sort of connected to the, to the deeply religious community. They're highly mobilized. I've seen this in, um, in, in uh, when they have candidate selections, you'll have a moderate candidate and it's just like one door at a time, like one Jen at a time, one Jen and John at a time. And versus these, these deeply SOCONs, they're just bringing them in by the busload. They all meet at the church and they're bringing them in on the busload. It's such a difficult process to, 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 to find what I'm calling center spectrum conservatives and have their voices be amplified to the point where they can usurp um, these, these social conservative voices the the championing of these single issue largely social issues is is a drumbeat that's louder than the momentum of canada and that's so long as that remains in dysfunction we're going to have a problem i have always found it interesting that the vocal minority of the conservative party and i would even say today with the liberal party because you're seeing more of the fringe left nominating candidates who are far left compared to what the conservative party of the 1990s and the 2000s were that they are taking over the party how do we stop that how do we stop the fringe right taking over the conservative party and more moderate views like yourself like your father's to actually start standing up and saying okay enough's enough the vocal minority needs to go away in some sense and let the adults in the room start talking. Well, as I say in my podcast, the cure for electile dysfunction is, um, is twofold. One, we need a leader with um, a true aspirational vision that counteracts um, a lot of the stigma that, that is carried uh, by the party. Uh, it, it starts by saying, we are this, we are this, we are this, we are not this. 
And then you have to have some very difficult conversations with um, SOCONs. A lot of people say we got to just kick them out of the party, let them go find somewhere else to belong. I disagree with that. I disagree with that because I'm always a big fan of self-efficacy and keeping it within the person. I think if you go to them and say, listen, if you want to believe this personally, you do you. That's your right. And I'm not going to discourage you from believing your personal beliefs because I believe in, you know, naive realism that your reality is shaped by your lived experience, but I'm not running on it. So where, what else could I bring to you on the table? Because I have, I have had conversations with, with deeply um, right conservatives who have said like, yeah, I, I, I want, I want it to be pro-life. Uh, I want, I want made off the table. I want to call it euthanasia and, and assisted death. Um, I, you know, I'm, I, I don't want any of this. And then you say, well, if, if we ran on, if we just, just didn't have any of that in the platform policy, but we talked about, um, you know, responsible spending and, uh, economic programs that yielded a return on investment. We come to the table on that and they're like, Oh yeah, for sure. And you're like, Oh, great. So you're still going to go with the stuff that's important. Um, so I think there's just conversations to be had. So we, we need, I talk about this in the pod. We need Aaron O'Toole to also be a little bit of a grief counselor. We need him to be able to say like, uh, there's going to be some loss. Uh, we know that because we know fundamentally that people don't fear, change they fear loss and so the party leader has to work them through that loss to say this party can no longer represent this because we are not electable if we do and it's not responsible to the people at the center spectrum of the of the political uh seen who really need a, a, a government option to represent them at the polls and in parliament and i think it's possible but you know, Aaron O'Toole has been strikingly silent. I mean, he said things like, you know, we're not going to open up the abortion debate. We're not, you know, I believe that climate change is real. It's not enough. And it's coming out of position where it should. Um, he's got to start to have those tough conversations around how to bring people along. And he's got to do it at a time where he's got to hold stability within the party. So, I mean, a lot on the shoulders of Aaron O'Toole there, but I do believe it's possible. And then you have to, you absolutely have to amplify voices like mine. Like that's not a self-serving statement. I have a podcast, whatever, but you have to, every day I hear people say, I am conservative like you. I, and I'm building my little tribe. I have to be emboldened in some manner. And, and there's lots of us out there like James Robertson and, 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 uh, Jeff, uh, who run the outbound podcast, which is so much better than mine. And, you know, they're, they're, they're out there amplifying this center spectrum conservative message and, and that needs to have more traction and and we need we need less of an echo chamber within the within the conservative party in ottawa to get voices these outsider team of rival voices in so that people can say oh my god i'm listening to jennifer and i belong with jennifer and i can do something with that because currently i'm just like great please like my podcast that's it that's all i can offer you it's just yeah. hot air um we, we talked about it a little bit and you said we we're going to talk about it here during the show, but you bring up um, the different fractions of the conservative party. And this area that I want to talk about is stigma, stigma of the fringe parts of parties coming out, saying stupid things. Let's be honest. Sometimes they are stupid things. Um, and then everyone getting painted with a broad brushstroke. How do you, as a, a podcast host, as a conservative, 
challenge the narrative that is the vocal minority that is coming out on Twitter, on social media, and say, that is what they believe, that is not what the Conservative Party and what I believe as a Conservative. Well, I've always believed that approaching it through a policy lens is is a is an attractive way to go. Letting people see some of the policy ideas that I have, really presenting in a non sexy way, like where the where where the party is now and where it can go uh, without a bunch of like drama and entertainment. Um, but I think it's also about me saying to the to the leader, "What are you doing to me?" And us, the center spectrum conservatives, because when you make conscious decisions within the party to let them amplify their voices, you you're making it very difficult. I mean, there's been conversations for me about even my future employability by self-identifying as a vocal conservative. People have said to me, I'm not even sure you're employable. I work in the PR space like you're now you now carry that stigma. And, and you know, Aaron O'Toole and whatever leader may come after owe me better. Uh, they owe us all better. I would put you in that same category. They all they owe us better. Um, you know, I was you know, certainly, you know, Derek Sloan's what a, what a wild card, but, um, but you even saw like Tamara Jansen from, from Cloverdale Langley city. Um, she's so deeply out of touch with even just like the reality of social issues, um, that I've been thinking long and hard, like her opponent will be John Aldeg. I think in another world, John Aldeg is conservative. I think that's how far this, this spectrum has gotten out of control. When I hear John talk about a vision, um, for, for Cloverdale Langley city, I'm like, this dude is a conservative. I swear, I swear to God he is. And so sometimes I wonder, do I go campaign for John, John Alday? Do I go and say conservatives for this liberal candidate, because we're going to push out Tamara Jansen. And then we're going to go back to Aaron O'Toole and say, this is the sacrifice that conservatives are going to make. We're actually going to push out your, your SOCONs so that you will put a more moderate candidate in these ridings. Um, I feel the same way. There was a, who was it yesterday? An, an, an MP from, from Ontario. She's doing like this little breaking news segment that she airs oh, on. Who is it? I can't I, remember her name. I, I, have, I, I want to say Cheryl Gallant, but it's not Cheryl Gallant. No. And that's the only name that's stuck in my head right now because <laughs> I know which and one she, you're and you just watch her spew this ridiculousness and you just think Trudeau has a tight lid on, on, on the surrogate environment. He's trying to have yeah, a tighter lid say, on the he's surrogate trying. environment. There's a he's few liberals trying. that are so done with his leadership that they want. Yeah, that's, new. that's very true. That's very true. But he's, he's got a tighter lid on it than, than Aaron O'Toole does. And like any time I turn on the CBC and I see that Michael Cooper is going to speak for the conservatives, I'm just like, I need to lay down. I need to lay down. I'm not, I'm not, I don't have the physical strength and the mental fortitude to see this through. And so I just think like, you know, I always think of the election readiness, like go to your election readiness team and say, who are going to be the young people who are going to be the educated people who are going to be the, the, the innovators, the people who believe in social innovation, who are prepared to challenge the, the, the bureaucracy that currently is institutionalized within the core of the party. And how do we give them a seat at the table? Okay. I would love to, uh, this. This is the best thing about this show. Um, I, I enjoy talking policy and you've just mentioned my biggest pet peeve when it comes to politics, especially elected politics, uh, electoral politics. It's great that you bring the young, the women, the educated, the uh, business leaders to the table. But if you look at the parties, 
and you see where they're running those people, it's in writings that they cannot win. Hey, yes. look, we, we can adapt. We can, we can bring these people to the table, but we know they're not going to win. So we're okay with that. And it pisses yeah, you- me off to no extreme. There was, I had a similar question about that. When you sit across from the leader and you say, the first question I I thought of was, am I going to be slammed into a riding that I can't win because you want to show a diversity quotient on a billboard? I I colloquially refer to it as Bob's bitches on billboards where they just are like, somebody get women, young women, put them in ridings where the person who's in there now is the minister of fisheries and deeply beloved. And, and they're like, yeah, it's, it's, it's all about being genuine or being about veneer and i think trudeau can be caught on this too um you know a lot of veneer a lot of veneer and, I, I would uh, say all party leaders can be called on it because you look at even in the last election, you saw NDP candidates who were qualified candidates, who were excellent candidates in conservative ridings in Alberta. OK, that's great. We need a candidate in Alberta. But why aren't you trying to uh, recruit someone in downtown Toronto to run yeah. against Christina Freeland because they would be, have a better chance? No, because we have the one person we already want in that riding and it's the person we've always wanted. It doesn't work. Yeah. And I think that there has to be, there also, you're absolutely right. And I feel your energy on this because there also has to be a part of addressing um, like the, the climax thinking that occurs within the EDAs. Um, You know, I have seen with my own two eyes, young people, not just, I don't want to stigmatize young people, people who are more center spectrum, try to come in to really, really, really deeply blue electoral district associations and they're just pushed right out there's it's happened to me it's happened to you know other people that i know you're pushed right out the minute you say things like hey i'm a big proponent for made i mean i'm well on the record as being like uh hello this is not a political issue this is a human rights issue and in years time i think conservatives will be on the wrong side of history on 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 bill c7 for sure um but the minute you ostracize yourself by identifying as, you know, really saying like, I, I want to bring, like, I want to bring environmental ideas as part of this EDA lifting to the convention and this, this climax thinking, this belief that the, the way it is today is the best it can ever be stops that from happening. And O'Toole needs to put together like a, like a team to go into these EDAs and say, is it term limits? Is it, is it, is it, I hate to say diverse, uh, diversity quotient, uh, quotas. I, I hate that. I would hate to be the one woman in an EDA because I'm meeting a quota. Um, but is how, what can we put in there to shake up these EDAs so that the, like there's battleground. Like I want to see these EDA meetings be like these thunderdomes where like two come in and one comes out and they're fighting out the good fight. Um, I think it'll make the policy convention better. I think it'll make the, the, the work of the national policy committee better. And I think ultimately it serves the leader differently. And then I think you, you stop this, this endless train of, you know, deeply SOCON EDAs, choosing more deeply, um, deeply SOCON members, choosing a deeply SOCON uh, uh, a person to run, a candidate to run. And then they're not elected. And then they just are like, oh, let's just, let's just do the same thing again, but harder. And you're like, come on. Like there's, we're just so ripe for innovation. It just drives me crazy. And let's be honest, um, we both of us are from Alberta. I'm from Ontario, but in Ontario, conservatism is a little bit more different than Alberta. You don't get Mm -hmm. the social conservative in downtown Toronto. You would not get that in Toronto center. So they have their own unique. Go ahead. You're not getting it at Edmonton either. 
That's true. Right. So you're like, we're cracking, we're cracking out here too. Um, yeah, I'm coming to you live from Calgary and we yeah, we're cracking even here. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when I look at like, you know, we've got Greg McLean in, in Calgary center, he door to door on pipelines and we're done with pipelines. It's over. So give me something else. Like I just, how many, how many doors shot back with what's next? What else you got? You got, you got other stuff too. And so I just think like, you know, I think you have to shake up these writings. I mean, you're already losing elections, so be bold. And 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 this is the great thing about you. There's one you, you there's one episode in your this season, season two of Conservative Like Me, that you talk about environmentalism, and yeah. you talk about it not just in that episode, but also in a few other episodes. And there's a recent media storm that you got very passionate about was the recent Conservative convention, and. Mm-hmm. Aaron O'Toole and the PR perspective of having a vote after the leadership spoke. Um, first off, for you, what is conservation? What is environmentalism to you as a moderate conservative? Yeah. So let me just talk about the convention and then I'll talk about the environmental yeah, thing. Which I was going to bring up afterwards, but yeah. Is, <laughs> is um, you know, a, a PR person must atone for what happened at the policy convention. Tell me. Somebody, somebody reach me on Twitter at the Jen Sanford to explain to me how you can justify in your ever loving mind that you would have the leader speak and then you would have the members vote. Are you insane? You have the members vote and then you give the leader the last word. Why? Because he is the leader. You intentionally created one singular narrative out of a policy convention that I think actually really had some winners. And that's just that's just planning that's just event management and that's what makes me miserable about it is that there was such a compelling opportunity for the you know if they i i totally concede that behind this headline that climate change policy was written like crap it was poorly written it had all these and you even saw in the debate people were like can we get a friendly amendment on this can we just retool the language a little bit like this i think had there been greater due diligence behind the scenes i think a better written policy statement would have actually passed i you know if you would have asked me to vote on it as a delegate ah i'm not sure i would have voted on it it either. And nobody believes that climate change is more real than I do. I work in the climate change space. And so a lot of that was just policy crap. And then it was, but the bigger piece around, you know, allowing then Aaron O'Toole to come out and saying, you know, I, I'm dismayed today in the decision, um, not to support this policy choice that had this, that had the sentence that climate change is real. We are not electable without it. But more importantly, this tells me that I have work to do to bring you along to the vision I have for the momentum of Canada. Like just something so aspirational could have been could have been driven out of that. And instead, it's four days of Aaron O'Toole being like, I am the leader. I'm the captain now. And we're like, I'm the oh. captain and we will release our environmental policy in due course. OK, we yeah. saw that with we saw that with Andrew Shear. in due course does not work. Today's nope. major topic is environment with the reason people want to talk about the environment. It's it's in the top yep. three polling for forever, even during the pandemic. And that's and, you know, all you do is suck the energy right back to the Liberal Party who every day wake up and get to tweet like, where is it? Where is it? Right. Yep. We continue to figure it out and you don't. And I yeah, I, I, I think it had to be way more robust. I, I do think that the environmental plan should have come out with the convention. Um, so you've asked me about the environment. So. 
I really care about the environment. I got to tell you, I, I really do. Good to hear. <laughs> yeah, I really do think climate change is real. I can't even believe I need to say that. I think it's an I think it's an eminent problem, but I'm tired of the drama that's that's associated with it. I'm tired of the Al Gore math on it. Uh, I, I just I just want to be a country where we say if we care about carbon, then we sequester it. We, we hold it to the ground. We like, let's do something with carbon. Let's not tax people when there's no alternative to that taxation. Um, I just, I, we talk about this in the podcast, like, you know, you, you, the tax is meant to be a behavior change, but what behavior change options do you have when, you know, heating your home or gassing up your vehicle, if you live in rural populations is your only choice. And, but again, you get to live in that space as a liberal because there's no competition. There's no competition narrative. And so in the podcast this season, I really wanted to go at it hard in terms of talking about um, how can we embolden the market to participate? Um, how can we look at real carbon sequestration? How can we look at innovation that we've seen around the world? And how can we make Canada like a world leader in doing some of this stuff and, and make it a, make it a national energy thing where people feel the energy of it? I thought I, I, I waxed nostalgically that I thought the vaccine program was going to be this like great moment in time where we all came together and instead it's a mess. And so maybe I'm just recycling that, you know, I'm just recycling that idea into now, um, you know, our green future, our green future. And when I see like this, this magical pony of, uh, you know, green jobs, green jobs, and you just know that the liberal party is like, yeah, that's going to be us. We're going to scale all of that. It creates more market dysfunction. The market has nowhere to participate. So I wanted to look at specific policies where the market has a job. Later on in the season, our actual season finale show is with Dan McTeague, the president of gas, uh, gas president of gas buddy or go guy. I forget. He was the former MP of uh, uh, Uxbridge in Ontario and a very critical uh, person when it comes to the carbon tax. Um, I'm going to ask him this, but I'm going to ask you this as well. Um, Were you surprised at the carbon tax judgment from the Supreme court? No, but I was surprised at the audacity of Jason Kenney to have a press conference and say, well, that didn't go my way. We're going to just think about it some more. Are you mad? Are you, I'll back up from the microphone. Cause I'm so mad. I, you should have stood right on that podium and said, cap and trade starts today. Cap and trade starts today. Notwithstanding we're doing what Quebec's doing. And I, I dare Trudeau not to give us the same deal. Uh, you knew that that was good. You just knew that was going to be constitutional and why you weren't thinking about business continuity, continuity scenarios. It's like flooding in the city of Calgary. You're like, oh, well, I, it's just raining. What do you want us to do? And we're like sandbag, man, sandbag. It's the same thing here. Um, you know, I, you know, the economic output of this is, is going to be real. The economic impact is going to be real. And uh, why you know, do you think Otis happened trade today? Why do you think the conservative and I would say some conservative MPs at the time when that announcement came out from the Supreme Court were pissed at the judges because it wasn't because you saw conservatives across Canada say, well, they were all liberal appointees. They were all they're all making one hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year. So they don't have to worry about the uh, negative impact that a carbon tax is going to get increased. Why do you think they started attacking the judges instead of the policy? You tell me, man, I have no idea. I offer nothing to that because to me, it was just Aaron O'Toole should have been like judgment. And I have a press conference two minutes after, and I have, I have an alternative narrative. 
which Scott Moe, premier of Saskatchewan, did beautifully. And he attacked, as he said, I'm going to introduce the exact same thing that New Brunswick has or New Brunswick and Nova Scotia. And then Minister of Environment said, well, you can't do that. Well, why is it good for this province and not for us? Yeah. And, and I, I would have loved to have seen Kenny come to the table with a cap and trade, because then if the federal government would have said no, you could have said, well, why is it good for Quebec and not for us? Um, yeah, I, 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 it's agility. And I think that this comes by the fact that it is such, there is so much of an echo chamber inside, inside the core of today's federal conservative party. I mean, look at all those guys in there and guys is exactly the right term. Like there's, there's, there's nobody in there who's like, you need to show them agility. I talk about this on the podcast because all I want Aaron O'Toole to do is what Bill Clinton did. I just want him to be able to say, I know what keeps you up at night and I'm going to tell you what it is before you have to tell me. And, and I'm going to like, just no more Ted, no more of those ridiculous, like, here's my wife. Here's my, how much I love my mom. Here's my two kids and a dog. Don't care. Don't care. Don't, I do not care. I don't care if you have five wives. I don't care. What I care about is, do you know what keeps me up at night and where I feel like their default setting becomes is where we don't have anything meaningful to offer. We default into angry politician. And in 2021, with the rise of citizen journalism and the rise of, of brand politic, where everybody, every single citizen has a political brand we have no tolerance anymore for the rise of the angry politician. It just falls flat. It just looks like puffery and Canadians see right through it. I mean, we're highly educated and and engaged 35 million plus people and we deserve more and we want more. And it, and it's overdue. It's overdue. Don't show me pictures of your dog. I don't care about Wexford. Cute. Not into it. Stephen Harper did it best. He, he, he governed, from the people. He did not govern from Twitter. And the rise of social media, you are seeing more and more politicians come onto Twitter and try to get their opinions and their policies from Twitter. And I think that needs to stop. And that's not just a conservative issue. That's a liberal issue. Justin Trudeau is a massive Twitter. And I know it's not him doing it, but his people are trying to push the narrative that, hey, we're cool on social media. No, get off go start knocking on some doors and calling some people who actually have some opinions. And the 3% of the world that has Twitter does not represent the 97% oh, I of it. Yeah. The world is not Twitter. I, I say this all the time. The world is not Twitter. The world is not social media. Um, they would suggest that we are these unglued. <laughs> yeah. They would suggest that we're completely unglued citizens who cannot be satisfied. Um, the, the, I'll concede that, that Stephen Harper really, really, you know, figured out the direct driveness of it. Now we just need to couple the empathy of it. We need to kind of put a, not a bit, a bit of a personality, but not what you're thinking. We just need to put empathy on it. Someone who can say, you know, I, we need a little bit of charisma. I I always used to say like, Justin Trudeau. Okay. That was a hoot. That's a hoot. And it really proves my point that I've been proving politically for 10 years, which is that America loves a hero. America loves a hero candidate, like can't eat, can't sleep, no quit, kind of a little bit unglued, but you know, they love a hero and Canadians love a victim. Even when he falters, we're like, it's okay, buddy, get up. It's going to be all right. You're, you can do it. We believe in you. We're going to get behind you. And the only thing that's going to to usurp that power, I think, is to bring a conservative leader who's also prepared to do what I like to call dad math to say, hey, listen, guys, 
choice is yours, but here's the economic consequences of door number one. And here's the, here's the, here's the economic opportunity with door number two. You do you, I'm just, you're an adult, but I'm just giving you the dad math and you decide what's good for you. And I will be proud of you when you make the right decision. Like that's, that's what we need a conservative leader to do. And you, you've been open about the on the podcast, so I don't think this has come come. This question comes as a shock. You were not in favor of Aaron O'Toole as the leader. You were uh, behind another candidate, but you are behind Aaron O'Toole now. Yeah, you know, I I think it was more kind of shock. I I didn't think that Aaron O'Toole was going to pull it off. I thought it was going to be Peter McKay. I'll just be honest. And um, did I think that he was going to have a chance to be prime minister? You know, I didn't know. I thought the whole lot of them were really just kind of like we're another intern interim group um except Derek Sloan I think he exists genuinely to just test the efficacy of my heart um and uh get out just, of Alberta Derek let's <laughs> get out of Alberta get out get out of Edmonton um so yeah I was surprised when he was selected I thought I thought that he ran a very social conservative uh campaign and then when he got there he kind of just was like okay let's talk about getting to the center of the spectrum so I was like okay well I'm gonna I'm gonna give this a try again it comes back to what I talked about earlier which is that I still have a huge amount of respect for people who choose to stand in the sun um in 2021 and beyond to, to run for elected to run for elected office. Um, it's, we don't make it easy. Uh, we're, we're incredibly hard on, on, on candidates, male, female, or otherwise. And, you know, for someone to step forward as the leader, I, you know, I'm going to give it its due. I'm going to give it its time. I'm a little bit frustrated with, with how this, how he started. I call it Tina Turner politicking where it's like proud Mary, like first we're going to take it nice and slow. And then we are going to really do it. Cause that's how we do it. And I'm just like, just sing the song. I left a good job in the city. Just get at it. Yeah. And uh, and I'd like to see more of that, especially because I do think we're going to get surprised with an election. And I still see the Conservative Party standing too still. I the Conservatives are going through a rebranding. They don't know who they are after Stephen Harper. Because Stephen Harper was the master of making the party his. He was the mm. Conservative Party. And I think every Conservative will agree with that as well. Stephen Harper made the Conservative Party his own. Andrew Scheer tried, but it was still Stephen Harper's party. And you could still see some, some remnants of Stephen Harper. Aaron O'Toole's trying. I think Aaron O'Toole is the Michael Ignatieff of the Liberal Party. And I and I, oh, yeah? I I know you don't might not agree with that, but Stephen Harper was the uh, sorry, uh, Andrew Shearer was Stefan Dion, faltered, sucked. Um, and <laughs> Michael Ignatieff screwed over the Liberal Party. Aaron O'Toole, I don't think is going to screw it over, but he's not going to be prime minister. I think the next leader is going to be prime minister. And I yeah, do not I- know who that is. Oh, I think you've got some candidates, but you know, the problem is, is that these, these potentials that are sitting in the wings have been harmed by the lack of a clear brand, right? I I think chiefly comes to my mind is a Pierre Polyev. Pierre Polyev, I actually think is a, is a builder of, of two sides. You know, wouldn't it have been great to see him positioned in something like the China portfolio and saying, I am going to work with the liberals because if there's ever a bipartisan time, it's bringing these two Michaels home and figuring out how we're going to address this, this penchant for Wolf warrior diplomacy but instead because there's a lack of a brand he's now just a pit bull he's just loud it's become about how he can polarize it's gotcha journalism almost from a political leader and i think that that will be to the detriment of him when he ultimately goes to run and you know he's going to run look at his social him uh, michael chong is going to be part of that i think candace bergen could be part of that Um, will be part of that 
You think so? Hi. There's a, as someone who lived in Northern Alberta for seven years, there's a lot of people who love Rempel. And I think she would do well in rural areas. I know the conservative leadership vote is kind of set up in a weird way where each riding has a hundred uh, points. And yeah. they're like, if, even if you have one person in the riding association or a hundred, it's still a hundred points. I think Rempel could do extremely well. And she is probably one of the voices of the new conservative movement in Canada. That's my opinion. Not with this it's, week's sort of sort of snub that she did with Jason Kenny, which still confuses the heck out of me. But I think it's she is one of the leaders of the conservative movement. Yeah, I think the challenge would be would would Canadians go out and 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 vote for her as prime minister? I don't know. We'll have to see. If I'm, I don't think she's going to run in the next leadership. If I'm wrong, I'll buy a beer. There you go. She might go to Oklahoma. She might go move in with her husband. Does I know her? This is they what I'm just thinking. got married. Who knows? This is what I'm thinking. I think she's headed south, but uh, you know, I, I, I thank her for her. Like I, I, I don't disagree. I, I don't agree with her rhetoric style. Um, I think it's, too, I think it's too spicy, but um, I do appreciate that she's been a front bencher um, repping for women um, in the house of commons. And, you know, we need trailblazers like that still. Um, before we go, because we're almost at the hour mark, but I still want to talk about one area here because you talk about it, not just in the first season, you do a second part of it in season two, your last episode, Alberta politics, Alberta politics has become, let's, I'm going to put it lightly, a blood sport when it comes to conservative politics, especially in the last week and a half with the recent announcement of 17 members of the UCP saying Mm -hmm. that the restrictions are too uh, too much for their rural ridings. Rural versus urban there. Where are you on this whole conservative, being conservative in Alberta in today's COVID-19 era? Well, I think that Jason Kenney is giving a, a masterclass on human behavior. So he's a, he's a federal guy and federal politicians are like, thank you for your vote. I'm going to go to Ottawa. You be best. And what... <laughs> he did was he tried to take that same model and do it here in Alberta. And so he's like, thank you for your vote. I'm going to go be the, pre- the premier. And we were all like, no, we're coming too. You got to take us along. This is provincial politics, man. We got to come with you. And he's like, no, I'm good. And we're like, no, no, you got to take us with you. And uh, you know, and then it's, it is a blood sport. We're incredibly hard on him. And when you give, when you give politicians nowhere to go to be successful, they do what human nature tells them to do. They pivot home, they go home. So now he's just rocking it to the base because he's got no other pathway forward. I, I genuinely do believe that his, his long-term vision, and I would love to be proven wrong on this. His long-term vision was to be the prime, the premier of Alberta, lead it, you know, be its savior and then tr- champion that all the way back to being the prime minister of Canada. I think that was his plan. Now he's fallen short on step one and now can't reach step two. And so here we are. Um, we decided to, to do Alberta again. It wasn't my favorite choice, but we decided to do it again because everything that we had said is a, it's a podcast unicorn. Everything we said eight months ago still held up, you know, keeping Alberta's money in Alberta Uh, Really looking at Quebec as not an adversary, uh, but as like a model for success and saying, let's keep let's keep the money in this in this country or in this province. And and, and let's try to self animate and and simply say, like the, the way I sort of tried to position it was that we have been in this incredible echelon of trying to deal with 
systemic inequity, right? You know, look at the Me Too movement addressing women's progress, the Black Lives Matter movement addressing, you know, how do how do we deal with systemic racism? Um, it's time to deal with the systemic inequity of Alberta. Like it's it's time has come up, and so I I just felt like Jason Kenny has these tremendous opportunities to make these bold moves and is choosing not to. And that is completely counter to what he promised us when he was in that big blue truck. And that bugs me because if, uh, if an entire citizen like me is political, like whole human experience is defined by the political will of, of others, Jason Kenney has done a tremendous disservice to, to Albertans, especially young ones that should get the same extraordinary experience that you and I, that you and I have enjoyed um, as people who reside in Alberta. And for that, for that reason, my only, my only thought on Jason Kenney is it's time to atone. It's time to atone and say, but again, very similar to the, to the national program. He has got an, an echo chamber very close to him that is not serving him. You know, I'm a PR person. So I, you know, I, I get my, my feathers ruffled with Matt Wolf. You know, when they, when surrogates become louder than the leader, you have done a tremendous disservice to your leader. So maybe the atonement is like a group effort. Maybe it's a group atonement, like survivor style. Um, but you know, he's going to be the leader here for a little bit of time and he, he needs to make some very, very, very big pivots. And I don't know why he's not swinging that bat at anything. I, I agree that when surrogates become louder than the leader, it, you need to change. And I think Aaron O'Toole did a uh, service to himself when he, uh, moved Pierre Polivier into skills, work, and then uh, jobs, if I'm not mistaken. I forget the exact critic portfolio. I don't think he had a Fox. choice. Exactly. Because if the surrogate, like you said, is getting too loud, it is taking the air away from the leader. And I agree, Matt Wolf is taking the air from the leader because there was a while there, I would say probably at the beginning of this pandemic, where Matt Wolf was more Well, he was the named. headline. Exactly. Then Jason Kenney. And I don't know. Conservative politics in Alberta has always been a blood sport. Hence why you've had so many leaders, so many premiers who are conservative (laughs) in the last 20 years. Every other province seems to like kick them out during election. We kick them out midterm. Do you believe that Jason Kenney can survive until the next election? Because there is a leadership review coming up in a year in time. Yeah, I do think he will. Okay. I do think he will. Should he is a different question, but I do think he will. Wow. Um, so again, if that, I'm wrong, I'll buy you another beer. There you go. There you go. Um, so before we wrap up here, I do want to take this moment and thank you um, to my listeners. Uh, please, please go find conservative like me. And I wrote down the where she talks about in season two with her father, John, uh, Jen and John talk about, uh, Environment, immigration, electile dysfunction, uh, media, military. So please go listen. Uh, they are amazing episodes. Uh, Jen, before you leave, do you have anything else you want to just pitch before we wrap up here? About the All podcast? I want to say is that if you listen to conservative like me and you think I am conservative like her, say it and say it loud and say it proud. Take it to Twitter, take it to your MP. Um, Say, I I am a center spectrum conservative and I want this party to look and feel like me. And I will be unrelenting in the pursuit of that. 
We've got to get vocal because we don't have this grand mobilization. It's just going to be one person at a time. So that would be my only thing is that if you listen to it and you find yourself nodding along, make sure you tell 10 people that you're nodding along with this. Um, and if I've gotten something wrong, because you can't be in the public space and then just go, please tell me that you like me. If I've gotten something wrong, hold me to account on Twitter, which is we've identified as not the microcosm for the, for the world, but it is the microcosm for my discussion about my podcast. You can reach me at the Jen Sanford. That's Jen double N S A N F O R D. You'll find me there. You can even search conservative like me podcast and find me continue the conversation. I talk about women in the podcast. I'm one woman speaking for all women. That's dangerous. If you're a woman listening to that podcast, please add to the discussion because ultimately it's, this is the level of discourse that we deserve. And this is the level of discourse that we're going to have because the government has chosen not to. Um, so for my listeners, the links to her Twitter, her website, uh, is there any other social media platforms that we might want to link to? Instagram, nope, that's it. Facebook, just Twitter and nope. uh, your website you will be in our show notes. So be sure to follow her, go to the website, check it out, and then show uh, the link to the Apple podcast, uh, conservative like me page. I'm not sure how to say that correctly here in today's world uh, is also in the show notes. So please follow along. Jen, thank you so much for doing this. Greatly appreciate it. Follow along her show. Nine great episodes that just released on April 9th. I just wanted to make sure I got that right. <laughs> you bet. You bet. And thank you so much for having me. I so appreciate this. What a highlight. Thank you once again for listening to the Cross Border Interview Podcast. If you love this episode of the Cross Border Interview Podcast, head over to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast and subscribe, rate us, and leave us a review. All the links to our social media accounts are in the show notes or visit www.crossborderinterviews.ca. The Cross Border Interview Podcast was produced and edited by Miranda Brown and Associates Incorporated. Be sure to tune in for our next episode of the Cross Border Interview Podcast. Once again, thank you. Whoa!